Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Brian Hanley. Brian, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hello everybody. I am Dr. Brian Hanley. I work at Etihad University in the UK, where I'm a reader in sport and exercise biomechanics. Um, I studied applied physiology uh, in my native Ireland before I moved to Leeds 26 years ago, where I studied sport and exercise science. Um, I also have a, a degree in psychology, and my PhD was in biomechanics of race walking. Um, although mostly uh, when I was younger, I, I did uh, cross country, marathon running, uh, road running of various distances. Um, I was always interested in pacing strategies from competing in, in distance running and from my coaching. Um, although my, my actual interest in biomechanics of athletics really started from uh, coaching the uh, athletes doing the hurdles. So uh, what I've learned in, you know, biomechanics, physiology, psychology, they, they've helped me to understand the various aspects that are important in competing well in, in distance running. Um, I have done research on distances from sprints to marathon, but really my, my main um, focus is on the biomechanics of endurance events within athletics. Ideal, yeah. So I did my first half marathon and then mm-hmm. I have another one coming up. And I, the more I learn about running, the more I realize that a lot of people do it or if they don't do it, they'd love to do a bit of running. So I'm like, right. Um, I have a lot of clients who who like to be active, obviously. And, um, I'm trying to learn as much as I can about it. So you have the perfect level of experience about it. So, um, what would you say your speciality is like, what what would you specialize in, in terms of research? Um, well, um, my main research, my, my, if, if you were to, to Google me, I, I suppose it would be the biomechanics of race walking. Now, uh, I'd probably be the world leading expert in the biomechanics of race walking, but it's a quite small area. I never actually did the event myself. Um, what attracted me to do research in it was that it's, it's so complicated and it has specific constraints on gait, which are really interesting from a biomechanics point of view. Um, but, you know, alongside that, I, I do study um, biomechanics of running. Um, most recently, I've been looking at middle distance running, but um, my my expertise covers uh, sort of 800 meters up to, up to marathon. Mostly, I used to do 10K up to marathon myself. So I, I kind of understand those events a little bit more um, and therefore can can. can that helps me when I would do research because I'm able to know what kind of things matter to a marathon runner or a half marathon runner or whatever. Um, in terms of pacing aspect, the reason I, I really got into that was because I can never understand when I used to race why so many people ran off so fast at the beginning when it was such a long race. So I wanted to study that from a scientific point of view and just see what are people actually doing and, and maybe understand why they were doing it. So, so I, I like all athletics. I, I've done studies even on, on pole vault, but um, my background is in distance running um, and that's where you know I'm, I'm hoping to develop the research further. Brilliant. So hopefully by the end of this, I will be uh, a faster runner <laughs> from what I picked up. Um, so just a question I'm thinking of is in terms of walking and running, what's the, what's the difference typically in terms of the average walk pace and run pace? Like So the typical recommendation you hear is like you need to do 10,000 steps a day how much running would you have to do to make you know to be the same amount of, of steps in terms of like intensity or calories burned? do you have any idea how to equate it not really I mean 10,000 steps walking um maybe about six kilometers or something uh, I personally am able to do that I, I walk I don't drive so I, I walk back yeah um so I, I would normally get my steps but running wise it's a slightly different thing of course because um, the energy requirements are so much bigger because of how the body moves differently. Uh, so I don't know what you need to do running wise to make it or what the walk uh, equivalent. Um, but clearly, if you if you run six kilometers a day, uh, that'll take you a lot less time than than walking it. Um, but the energy requirement is sort of a, a lot. The Progression Health Podcast has teamed up with TRX. So TRX is a body weight training piece of equipment that you can hook up anywhere, anytime. And uh, I highly recommend it. I use it in every session with my clients. I use it to warm up and also for stretching. Uh, but if you are traveling, which is where I recommend everyone use it, you know, it's hard to get to a gym. Uh, it's hard to find the time. But you could literally work out from your hotel room with the TRX um, and the door attachment that it has where it doesn't damage the door, but it gives you an effective workout. I also like to add in other things like uh, glute 
glute bands and uh, resistance bands. Uh, but once you have the TRX, then you can figure all that out. So get yourself 50% off on the TRX home workout equipment with the code Progression Health TRX and boost your workout effectiveness and consistency. Progression Health Podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online therapy service which will help you to more effectively manage your mental health. Mental health is very important and it's something that all of us are realizing now, especially after the pandemic. During the pandemic, for me especially, it was very challenging and I, I reached out to BetterHelp. I uh, tried out a few of their licensed therapists, settled on one for the majority of the pandemic and I found uh, the help that I received invaluable. And the great thing also is that you can speak to your therapist outside of sessions. Um, if it's not working out, you can switch. Very affordable. It's really easy to use also. Um, and if someone hasn't tried therapy before, but you're kind of, you know, you're curious, I would highly recommend BetterHelp. So what we've done is uh, we've got a sign up link I'll attach in the show notes. And basically you can get a discount to get started and uh, start improving your mental health today. So BetterHelp or better mental health. Greater. Um, sometimes uh, actually walking fast is, is harder than running slowly. So we have something called the walk to run transition, which is where above a certain walking speed, it's actually easier to jog slowly than to, to walk at the same speed simply because of the way you, 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 um, you're you moving. Uh, when, when you run, you, you store energy a little bit differently. Right, okay, so yeah, it's just not a, a straight equation to, to switch them over. No, uh, no. Got it. And um, you just mentioned earlier you did uh, psychology as well as, as one of your areas uh, you've looked into. How does that tie into like running? Is, is there any kind of, in terms of like somebody going through a race or going for uh, a run, is there any kind of psychological tips or uh, ideas you have around that to help people with their running? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> One of the things we looked at was what's called ego orientation in distance runners. Now that's more the elite end. Like, why do they sort of uh, push themselves to always win or you know why is winning more important than them getting times and that's not really relevant to the average marathoner who, who wants to get around in three hours or three and a half hours or whatever um i think for, there's there's a psychological concept called that many people might be familiar with called raising of perceived exertion so if you've ever run on a, as a, an experiment for someone on a treadmill they might put a sheet in front of you and it's got numbers on it and, and six might be really easy and 10 might be you know feeling a bit hard and 20 is maximum effort that, it's, it's, it's called the RPE scale. Um, and uh, sometimes, if you like, we our brains have this internally to some extent, as in, you know, we know that a certain pace feels easy or hard. But the problem is that um, with racing of perceived exertion is the fact that it has the word perceived in it. Um, is not a real measure of actual physiological effort. So what can happen is that runners can fool themselves into thinking that they're running effortlessly when actually they're running very hard in terms of using up energy and tiring out their muscles. So if you feel like, I always think, I, I always just say as a coach, if, you're, if you feel at the beginning of a race that you're running too fast, then you're definitely running too fast. If you feel like you're running at the right speed, you're still too fast. And even if you feel like you're running too slowly, you're probably still running too fast. So um, I think that this this happens to even the elite runners because um, you you know if you're doing a marathon, the first mile will feel easy feel easy if you train properly. So often you go faster than you should because you're running at the speed you feel like you, you you perceive as being easy, but that speed would be really difficult at the end of the race. So in a way, you have to ignore how you feel. Some people do that by maybe they wear a heart rate monitor. Sometimes people might uh, go by a certain time that they're aiming for. Uh, I think it's important not to ignore that. Um, so if you're aiming to do seven minute miling because you want to do the marathon in about three hours and you do the first mile in six minutes, it might have felt easy, but the next one's going to feel harder and so on and so on. So in a way, you need an objective measure uh, like a stopwatch to contain yourself because your rating of perceived exertion is probably going to be low, um, lower than than what is helpful, if that makes sense. So in a way, you have to ignore how you feel um, at the beginning of a race because it's going to affect you later. Yeah, so it's like, don't try and trust your gut and uh, have a have a, <laughs> have a have a plan. That's, that's so funny you use that example because uh, when I did the half marathon, I was like, all right, I'll follow this pacer. And my, yeah. 
I had, the, I had the loosest plan ever and it was in hindsight it's, it was a terrible idea but it was just like I'll follow this pacer um, and of course the pacer that was nearest to me was someone way faster than me and I ended up by not mile nine at a walking pace thinking that I had ruined the whole race and uh, I had just my uh, rate of exertion was like oh sure it's you know uh, it's not too hard basically I mean I know I'm going fast but it's not too hard and I was actually going way faster than mm-hmm. I had intended to yeah so basically yeah. to your point uh our our feeling is not it's not accurate and no no it's it's hopelessly and hopelessly inaccurate it's just you know it but it even happens to the world's best um especially middle distance they all you wouldn't believe that in the most 800 meter races even in the heats in the olympics or whatever nearly all the athletes will will do the first 200 meters at world record pace and of course they don't finish at that speed there's no need to do it um the, the, the world's best marathoners will probably not make the same mistake um having said that they in general they do actually start too fast they don't look like they're going too fast that's another thing often when you watch a marathon let's say it's the olympic marathon or a world championship marathon everybody in the first five ten kilometers looks really easy and it, the, the way if you analyze the race just watching it on the television the way you would believe it works is that everybody starts off slowly and towards the end the best guys just sprint away from the others or they they, they move away when in reality at the beginning they're working really hard and instead of them instead of a certain group moving away by moving faster actually those guys the, the ones at the back they just they're just slowing down a lot earlier and this happens more more for men than so uh, it's not just their own feelings of perceived exertion that are slightly wrong it's also the way they look they look like they're running easy but internally they're 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 running out of fuel already you know yeah. too quickly relative to the distance yeah and and isn't there also like a delayed effect so like um you could be running at top speed and your heart rate only gets up to its max heart rate kind of after the fact so does yeah that would make sense as well like physiologically there's like a delayed effect yeah yeah i i actually was talking about this someone else earlier today that i'd read somewhere someone was saying oh i'm going to aim for I don't know, 185 beats per minute it was something quite high actually I thought, how can you it doesn't work like that because your heart rate monitor doesn't pick up exactly what you have at that exact instant sometimes it re- reports you something that has just happened um and like you say sometimes you know you could be running a race and it's when you stop that suddenly your heart rate increases so um sort of a compensatory mechanism or whatever so uh, although heart rate monitors are useful and so on um it's not always the case that what the heart rate you see is the heart rate actually have at that instant it, it's not instantaneous feedback like yeah that. so then to kind of avoid on a too high a heart rate or too high a pace mm-hmm. it sounds like planning is like absolutely essential is that the kind of way to mitigate against that yeah it's it's about self-control um i read a quote from an irish coach a few days ago and i think it was something like you have to learn patience so um, I debated this with someone and they said that they think it's better for athletes to go fast. So let's say it's a classic example is the world cross country or any cross country because there's no clocks or anything. Nobody knows the exact distance. Nobody knows really how fast they're going. So everybody goes off really fast. Um, some people, one, this guy was saying, yeah, but if you're not, if you don't try to keep up with the beginning, you can lose heart and feel like you're not going to catch them up. So for morale, it's better. But my argument would be the other way around. It's, I think you're better off starting off slowly, knowing people are going to go too fast and then, you know, pass them out. So uh, there was an Irish race walk in the 2012 Olympics and she she told me after about two kilometers which is one lap she looked back and there was barely anybody behind her and she started worrying am I am I going too slowly but actually she picked up people over and she passed out I don't know half the field at least uh, I think it was actually more than that she passed out so in a way you, you have to trust yourself that A you know don't go too fast people will slow down and it'll feel better when you start passing them out later in the race and actually that gives you such a psychological boost that you probably do better um, than you would if you were on your own or whatever so um you have to, uh, you know, the word confidence means uh, trust. So self-confidence means self-trusting. So confidence isn't about believing you can do something that's impossible. It's about knowing yourself, knowing what you can do and trusting yourself. So that's what you have to develop. Um, recently, uh, or actually it, was, it was last year, uh, I, I spoke with an Australian coach and told me what he'd done is looked at my pacing profiles of what actually happens in races. And they got their top athlete who was going to be competing in the Olympics. She got to the final. Actually. She was, she, um, they wanted her to run in training like you actually run in a race rather than what 
the old attitude. It's going to be, yeah. yeah. So that what they did was they took the watch off her. They didn't tell her anything. They just got a lot of other athletes who knew what to do, and they they varied pace according to what normally happens in a in a Olympic final or whatever. And the athlete found it really strange, not knowing what time it was and that. But she just had to learn to, if you like, trust herself and be ready for the unexpected or whatever. So I mean, fifteen hundred isn't race like a marathon, but sometimes you have to learn to trust yourself because um, there's another good example if you don't mind me picking it but the, in 1972 so 50 years ago uh, the Olympic 800 metres was won, won by an American called Dave Watt and if you watch the video on YouTube or anywhere else I think uh, they'll often describe it as uh, an example of an athlete not giving up because by 200 metres he was uh, but eventually as the race went on he caught up and caught up and caught up and, and he, he won on the line by a tiny tiny margin now for me that is not an example of not giving up because he's an elite athlete in the Olympic final what it actually was was really amazing pace because he did nearly every single 100 metre section in 13 seconds which added up to 152 or sorry 140 so he had very even pace the whole way through um, now he said part of the reason he didn't go off really fast in the beginning was he simply couldn't keep up but um, in a way he would have trusted himself you know this speed is too fast I'll catch up later maybe he didn't know he was going to win the race maybe he didn't know he was going to work that well but um, you know you, you, if you Kelly Holmes in 2004 the women's 800 metres she did the same even pace pretty much the whole way around went from about last to first so you know if, if you if you know what, what time you want to achieve if you know you've done the training, you know, things will happen a certain way. People will always slow down. If, if people are going off a world record pace in the first 200 meters, they're not going to do world. They're not going to do world. It's just not going to happen. So you have to trust yourself and you have to trust reality, if you like. And if somebody does break the world record, okay, well, what could you have done about it? Um, so uh, having the ability is one thing, but you can easily lose out because of stupid tactics. Uh, and that goes for, from Olympic champion, recreational. Yeah, having uh, a plan in place. And it's funny, I mentioned uh, patience. I was talking to a client about patience and I was saying, you know, do you get more patience as you get older? And she's like, unfortunately not. But <laughs> <laughs> I think you can be aware, kind of like you said, uh, reacting to like people going at a world record pace. If you know that uh, you're impatient, you can always make a plan to try and, you know, uh, account for that. So especially with the running, uh, do you think saving the approach that you're kind of mentioning, saving a bit for the end of the race, do you think you can try and run a sort of like your own record time in the last couple of, you know, miles or like just speaking of a half marathon in the last couple of miles or what's a kind of a, a useful strategy to approach a race from uh, if you start slow? Um. Well, I mean, even pace is the, physiologically, even pace is the best one. So if you want to do 92 minutes for the half marathon, that's seven minute mile. Um, so you want to do every mile in seven minutes. That's the reality. You might want to do an exit list. You might want to start off at 7.10, gradually speed up. The only problem with that is there is, a, there is a really nice paper a few years ago on how the reality is you just, sometimes you can't make up. If you go too slowly, there's nothing you can do physiologically to catch up the difference. So if you do too many of these 710, physiologically, you might not be able to start doing 650s and 640s towards the end of the race. That's why even pace is better. Um, but if you if you can run at your maximum aerobic speed, so where you're not using any anaerobic energy, and you can do that for 12 or 12 and a half, 13 miles of your half marathon, you'll be able to sprint at the end. Um, so knowing what that speed is, is helpful. Knowing, knowing what you can what you can achieve is helpful. The reality is if you haven't trained well enough, it doesn't really matter what pace you start off, you're not gonna you're not gonna make but if you know you're able to do it then yeah you should be able to um, have a little bit in reserve. But if you start off too fast, all that sprint finish energy, if you like, if you want to call it that the anaerobic energy, it's already gone. So there's no way you're gonna use it at the end. You're not gonna get it. Yeah if it's not there to begin with you, you can't pull it back. Yeah, um, yeah if you've already used it up. And uh the, the sprint to finish then that kind of idea I'm just thinking of it now is that's from what you said it's probably not ideal. You you wouldn't want to sprint and I'm going to say sprint, I say that pretty loosely, but uh, mm. let's just say you're running at an even pace for the first 10 miles of the 13 and a half. You wouldn't want to go from something like, I think I'll be doing like an eight minute mile. I wouldn't want to go and try and go for the final three for like six minutes. Or no. would you want to kind of minimize this, the uh, the difference from that average pace as much as possible? Do you, do you want to keep it as consistent as possible? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's not, if the course is not flat, if, so I, I run a race in, in England, it's quite well known, it's called the Great North Run in, in Newcastle. I was lucky enough to be in the elite field for that um, um, did 71 minutes and but it's famous because actually it's not famous but it's 
it's one of those courses where actually if you get a record on it it doesn't count as a world record or whatever because its net is downhill so people go into the race thinking it's going to be this nice easy downhill but it's not like that at all it's really undulating so you're kind of up and down for about 12 miles or something then there's this big drop uh, to the river or the, the, the seaside or whatever it is can't remember very well and then you run on a flat pit again so yes the bottom the end of the race is below where the start of the race was but it's not a flat course or it's not a, it's not a downhill course like that so you will get parts of the race that are slightly slower or slightly faster um, you have to take that into account or if, if it's really windy you have to take those into account because all of those things are going to affect so they can they can adjust what you need to do um, one point I'd make about heart rate monitors is that I know I mean I don't know if you know what Leeds is like but it's really hilly and I remember wearing heart rate monitors trying to get a certain percentage of and I just couldn't do it because every time I came to a hill it would, every time you tried running down a hill didn't matter how fast you went you couldn't get it high enough so um, you couldn't even do an even effort the whole time simply because places so um, <laughs> that's part of the reason I gave up ever using a stop I just didn't find them useful using a watch was more useful for knowing the times I wanted to achieve um, all other things being equal let's say it's a flat course and it's not too windy and it's not raining or anything like that yeah you want to be as even as possible the whole way around you might underachieve a little bit because it's hard to know exactly what the optimum pace is but it's better to slightly underdo it uh, a little bit for, for let's, let's say 12 miles and then easily do the last the last part of it. Right, yeah so speed up a bit yeah slightly yeah yeah if you have it as well um yeah. so i use the app strava to run and now you're making me think so my first question is what what's your audio thought on an app like that and then i i have my own training times so i'm thinking i'm not just magically going to run you know ha- like 50 percent faster on the day like my times in training are my times in training so um mm-hmm. how accurate is is an app like that and then if you use something like that would you just take your your average time and maybe slow it down a little bit uh, for an actual race to get a, a good kind of time to aim for. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I never used any apps or anything like that. So I mean, different people prefer different things. My approach, all like I said, I, I tried using the hard rate monitor. I found it was a waste of time simply because the terrain we have in Leeds. My approach was always to go by times. Now, what I mean by that is... What I liked to do is there would be uh, various parts of where I live where they'd have races. So there was a 10 mile race near where I live, near my unit. And I would get the bus out of that place and I'd do you know, warm up and whatever. And then I would do that exact 10 mile course. Now it was quite hilly, but I knew it was a 10 mile exactly measured course. And I would try to do that in under an hour every time I did. And would know by, because like I said, some parts were downhill, some parts were uphill. I knew where I wanted to be at uh, mile one, mile two, mile three. There might not be same speed but I knew where I wanted to be and I could compare with different days um, luckily I, I knew where all the mile markers were because they'd marked them out for the race yeah. there was another one I did that was about I think it was a 10k race and I would do that three times to get up to about whatever it is 18 and a bit miles and I knew where the markers were so I was able I always went by time I wasn't necessarily trying to do race speed I wasn't necessarily running at 10k pace uh, for that or, or marathon pace but I knew because they see the watch doesn't lie um, and I was able to monitor was I getting better or not by maybe how quickly I did the, those di- those runs or how easy I felt doing them? Because I wasn't necessarily doing them to do them as fast as possible. My time to do the 10 miles in training might be five minutes slower than the race. But I, uh, so half a, half a minute per mile slower. But I think um, that, that, that approach worked for me. I don't, I, I, like I said, I don't know apps, but because I didn't use, I, I trusted myself. I, I prefer to trust myself and, and the watch, how I was feeling rather than, than, than the apps. So I, I, I never used, I can't help you on that particular question. Um, but I would say as well, that, um, for me personally, I was always better in a race than in trainings for me there was a psychological boost of being in competition some people they go the opposite and i think some of those people it's because they they go too fast didn't race it you have to have a racing brain um but uh yeah i think a lot of a lot of technology nowadays is very useful but sometimes it takes over that makes sense um people are more interested in in a certain metric than what actually matters which is the time usually yeah it's good. i feel as though it overcomplicates things sometimes i can imagine how just having a watch would just really simplify the whole thing. Just in terms of performance, I'm just thinking to myself, so I like to drink coffee. And on the day, I was like, I'll have a little bit more coffee. What are your thoughts around caffeine for, you know, half marathon running? Um, should you have less? Should you have more? Should you have the same amount? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I don't drink tea or coffee. I don't drink caffeine. Keep really it simple all. again. <laughs> but um, I saw an interesting presentation about this at a World Athletics event. World Hundred Twenty championships there was a guy from belgium doing a talk about caffeine i asked him about it afterwards he was saying you know you could have caffeine mouthwashes you could have a bit of caffeine drink every 
few miles, or since he said it was a few miles, something like that. Um, I think it'll work, different things work to different people. Caffeine can stimulate the brain. It used to be a, a banned substance over a certain amount, but now it's allowed. Um, so it's a diuretic, so that can go against you. Um, I think for, for a lot of recreational runners, a lot of maybe the people who kind of listen to your podcast, they're not going to be doing the marathon where they have an energy drinks table specially set up for them and there's somebody handing it out to them. They're going to rely on what's in the race. So when I did the London Marathon in 2006, uh, the brand of drink that is provided at that competition, you know, they, they're a sponsor. So you can't have something else to get used to that drink, whether you like it or not, because that's what they're going to give you. So when I did my 20 mile runs, I would place a bottle of that drink certain at the, at the distances, roughly at the distances where we were going to get in the race, because they tell you in advance. So that I got used to running a certain distance, picking up the drink, drinking a certain amount, and then, you know, running more t- t- until I got the drink again. Um, I did that as well. There was a 20 mile race, it happened to be snowy in March, but I did the same thing. I, I had a drink with me. I dropped it on. It was a, a lap, a multiple lap once so we came back to the same so they have to leave my drink somewhere, do another whatever number of miles, pick it up again and drink it. Now, it had been covered up by snow in the time it took me to come around again, but I found it. And I think, um, you know, so if, if you if you planned to use ca- or if you train and you use caffeine during the race, but you're not going to get it in the real thing, no point. You, you've trained an adaptation that isn't going to work for you. So you have to uh, take reality into account. What's actually going to happen in the in the in the marathon or the half marathon? I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure. Caffeine gives such a huge advantage that's going to make a difference. Don't know how many of the, the world's top athletes have it. Certainly, sugar is a help, and caffeine. Will well, the fact that you are the expert and you don't know, <laughs> you don't know of of the elite athletes using it. That's that's quite telling, I would say. Yeah. I, it, when I did that London marathon, I hit the wall at about 23 miles. I had to walk a bit. It, and I didn't expect it at all. And um, in the London Marathon, you know, thousands of spectators, and one guy happened to have his hand out holding up jelly babies, and I grabbed, grabbed these jelly babies, and they gave me such a spur energy, I couldn't believe it. And I actually did the last section of the race in the same time as Haile Gebrselassie, who was an amazing runner. Obviously, I was nowhere, I wasn't <laughs> that close to him, but it, you know, the, the, this running out of energy can happen to anybody. Um, and uh, although I didn't, I never did a marathon after that. I always thought, you know, if I were doing another one. I'd get a little bag, I'd put in some sugary sweets, jelly babies or whatever, pin them to the inside of your shorts so that when you're getting, when you're struggling around about 20, mile 22 to 23, you have them ready. Because although I'd been having the energy drinks, I still ran out of fuel. I couldn't, I, and I, what surprised me as well, I always thought that even if I hit the wall, I'd be psychologically strong enough to push through the barrier, push through the pain, if you like. Didn't work, didn't make a difference. If you haven't got fuel, you can't run. Reality, it's like a car. If it hasn't got fuel, it's not going to go. You're the, you know, people are the same. So I've seen that written before. You can push through it. You can't because you haven't got anything to, to use. There's no, if there's no fuel, you, your muscles aren't going to work. So I don't know who the man was with the jelly babies, but I'm, I'm grateful to him. Um, and that maybe would be some advice is to have something tucked into your shorts so that you, you, you have that boost uh, if you need it. He, he was a race saver. So yeah, have, have, <laughs> have a backup. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking of the example you gave of the runner running without a time. Um, she was just going by feel. And mm. we were talking about like training harder than you actually compete. Is that a kind of an idea that you would recommend so that you would try and run faster in your training than you plan to run in the actual race? Yeah. If it's a half marathon um, and you're trying to do the seven minute miles and you have a 10 mile race before that, you might want to do that, trying to do that in sub seven minute miles, <clears throat> like 68 minutes. Um, I, I, I always found it hard to run as fast in training as like, extrinsic motivation, if you like. But in general, this is nothing new. You generally generally do shorter distance faster than race pace and longer distances slower. Um, but, you know, you, you, you do need some sort of guide, like you say, to how fast am I going to, you know, so if I'm aiming for seven minute miles in the half marathon, but I can't do it in the 10 miles or even over five. Um, but I don't think you need to have done exactly in training what you need to do in the race because um, there are massive advantages in a race of what's in training and that is all of other um, it's something I covered a lot in my studies like the half marathon one for example on pacing and half marathon um, you can resist going too fast then uh, the other people do help a lot and this has been studied quite widely in, in pacing we talk about herd behavior or the influence of, of, of opponents uh, I think it's a massive psychological benefit and it, it does mean you you, you sh- people should run faster in races than it, on their own yeah it's kind of like this intangible that's just like it kind of feels like normal to go a bit faster if other people are going faster around you and you kind of don't even realize it or before you realize it you're you just maintain that faster page, pace 
which is the real big benefit of a race. Um, so you mentioned you did the, the full marathon and that you hit the wall. So yeah. it leads me to ask the question then that some people would say is, you know, half or not half, but sorry, full marathons, they're not actually healthy. For like a human to run that length of, of time continuously, it's actually mm. detrimental to their health. Maybe it's a myth, but it's just something that I've heard. What are your thoughts around that idea? Well, after I did that marathon, I was sick for two weeks. Went to the doctor and she said I had a virus in my head. I didn't know that. I don't know whether I had that during the marathon. That's why I was affected. I, I, I really don't know, but I was really sick. Um, now, some people seem to be able to do marathons every few weeks or you know, even you get these charity ones where they do them every day. Um, the marathon is an interesting event because, of course, it, it was invented, if you like, for historical reasons or mythical reasons, you know, 1896. Never was a, such a thing as a 26-mile race. It just didn't exist. Um, it hadn't really been conceived of doing that kind of thing. Um, of course, that wasn't the, you know, even the distance of the marathon changed quite a bit in its early years. So in a way, if you, it's one, of, it's an event where up to 20 miles, you pretty much, most people are okay. It's in that last six miles where really you do run out of fuel, um, ignoring the world's best because they're slightly different shoes and all those now playing a part in that. The, the race to 20 miles, if you like, is completely different from the last six. I'll never forget that London Marathon whereby it was like, different people on different conveyor belts or something because and some were going fast and some were going slow and then you could pass someone out who's dying and then they pass you out later on or someone passes you out and then you pass because every just going everybody is sort of um not collapsing but everybody's reaching that point where they run out of fuel at, the, at the different uh, times and therefore everybody's going to slow down it's just when is it going to happen so um yeah it, it's 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 an event that's going to drain you uh if if for some reason they decided the marathon was going to be 20 miles if there had been the historical distance between marathon and, and athens then maybe we wouldn't it wouldn't be this man killer if you like but because it's just beyond what is normal um and this is obviously going to affect people who, who take longer to do it, maybe even more because of that how long it is it can really drain you it's definitely going to drain you energetically um and physically it can affect you if you if you're not really designed for running or you're designed for a different type of running. yeah yeah so i can think of a sprinter would be the obvious example like Usain Bolt's physique, he's designed typically to be much more athletic than, uh, or faster than uh, Mo Farah, for example. He's built the longest. Yeah, so um, the, way, the way I look at it is, the, the way I try to think about it is that um, a certain amount of how well you do it in any athletic event is going to be genetic. If you're not born with fast switch fibers, you're not going to be. A certain amount is going to be hard work. So it doesn't matter if you're born with fast switch fibers. If you don't actually train, you're not going to make it as a world-class sprinter. But I think the other aspect that I think some people don't think about or forget is that just being in the right niche. Um, and what I mean by that is that everybody is suited to one sport or another or one event in athletics more than the others. Now, you might not be great at it, but you, you'll fit it best. So if you, we mentioned the fast switch fibers, you've got fast switch fibers, you're probably going to be, you could become a sprinter. If you're really tall and slim, you might do the high jump. If you're a big, heavy gut person, you might do the shot put or other throws. So the people who like you mentioned Mo Farah, those, those kind of people, their niche uh, is for those who are slim, they're light, they have high aerobic capacity. They're, 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 they're the niche of endurance runners. And you can't, it's linked to genetics. So an athlete in the wrong niche will not succeed no matter how much work they do. Giving your example, Usain Bolt could train seven days a week all the time trying to be a marathon runner. And it's not going to happen for him because he's in the sprinter niche. Yeah? So, um, you know, I've come across world-class athletes, including a world champ who said, oh, I didn't, I didn't succeed because of talent. I didn't have any talent. It's because of all the hard work I did. It's just because I worked hard given the impression that you too could have been a champion if you worked hard. But it's not fully true because they just happen to be in the right niche. So they, these world champions, these endurance people, they, you know, slim, they would have had a high VO2 max, they would have had the right elasticity in their muscles or whatever. Um, and if it was just hard work, they could have succeeded at anything. They could have been the world champion high jumper or shot putter, but that's not true. So, um, you know, I, I think the word talent, they say they're not talented. I think the word talent, the problem is that people, they conflate that with um, skill. So, you know, a distance runner might not be able to do gymnastics or might, might not be able to do something skill, like the pole vault or hurdles. They're so so the talent they have, the talent a distance runner has is internal. It's the things you can't see, like, like the high view to max. Or maybe they've got really great mitochondria or they have a really high lactate threshold so they are talented they have to work hard to develop it of course to be the best in their niche but um 
you know, if you if you're in the wrong event, then you're not going to succeed. And I know a lot of people do the marathon because it's seen as a sort of a challenge. But ultimately, most of those, a lot of the people who are trying to do the marathon are in the wrong niche. They are not endurance runners, so they're gonna they're gonna struggle a bit more than others. Some people are suited to it. Some people just just aren't. But I understand, you know, not everybody who does the marathon is trying to win it. It's a personal challenge to do 26. Yeah, absolutely, very challenging. Makes me think of the, like we talked about patience earlier, and it's kind of like you know. And planning and being strategic, it's like that's another kind of the psychology of how you approach or approach a race is also very, very important as well. Like it's a, you know, maybe it could be a genetic factor, it could be like patience, or it could be a skill you develop and work on. And yeah, it just makes I, me- I think it's, yeah, I think it's definitely a skill you can work on. Um, it's, like I said, I, I always used to, well, I didn't coach that many. I used to coach some some decent women distance runners. Uh, I would always say, just 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 have to ignore everybody else at the beginning. They're not going to keep that off. If you try to keep up with them, neither will you. So you just have to ignore them because if you don't, you're just going to trust yourself. Just trust me. Just go slowly at the beginning. You'll feel like you're going too slow, but if we actually timed you, you're probably going fast. So just, you know, forget about how you perceive things um, and just, you know, just trust yourself that um going too slow feeling like you're too slow yeah and you can imagine as well in the intensity of a race day like you know a little bit of nerves um all the people around you and stuff it would be so easy to get caught up and be like i have to go faster and the last thing you want to do is to go slow but it's probably especially important because the intensity in the environment to go that little bit slower just so that you're going at your own pace yeah i think actually sometimes in the mass marathon new york or london or wherever actually people don't start off too fast because there's so many people around them it's not possible to go too fast uh so that can actually help a bit having the crowds around you but of course if the, all of the crowds are going too fast it, it can be quite difficult um i i think you can learn patience and actually in pacing studies on on children children tend to be worse at pacing themselves than adults so i think it is something you realize pretty quickly some people never learn though they always go off too quick every yeah, single they, time they make it their own style maybe um but <laughs> so switch, switching it up and just going to the research you've done so um you had a study called uh, grizzlies and gazelles you looked at yeah. duty factor so these are all terms I've never heard of before. I'm only new to running, uh, but I have heard of Leeds, the, the Premier League soccer club, so or I should say football club. I get killed back in Ireland for calling it yeah. soccer. <laughs> but um, yeah, can you tell us just a little bit about what it was like to work with those professional athletes? What is uh, a grizzly, a gazelle, and duty factor? Yeah, so the, I, mean, I had heard um, two coaches during the summer use the word gazelle. I didn't, I didn't, hadn't said it to them. They had said it to me first, if you know what I mean. One in Australian and a guy from a coach from Kenya and they were describing athletes as running like gazelles and automatically that will give you an idea of this sort of bouncy slim person maybe bouncing along um, and when I wrote the paper on these footballers I, I used grizzly as the opposite of a gazelle um, partly because it was also the same letter um, but uh, when I looked into it more um, gazelles are what we call cursorial means they're designed to run so certain animals are designed to run they will normally land on the front of their foot or you know, their, their paws or their, their hooves or whatever will be orientated so they land on the front they <coughs> have very low duty factors which I can explain in a second um, so certain animals especially on the savanna in Africa or wherever they will be designed to run so danger comes and they can run for a long time get away from the grizzly bears on the other hand what was interesting about them is they're non course so they're not designed to run now they can run very fast but they don't normally that's not that's not their niche I do like this biological niche. That's not their niche. Their niche is being big and powerful and strong. And they run plantigrade, which means they uh, land on their heel. If you like, if, if compared with a human, they land on their heel and they roll off the front. So they're not <clears throat> forefoot. They're the sort of rear foot strikers, if you want to. So what happened with the Leeds United players was um, they came to us uh, last year. and We tested them various tests. Um, so we tested whether they were symmetrical or not for, for strength tests, for jump tests, for uh, sprinting tests. We ran them on a treadmill and uh, three different speeds. So 12 kilometers an hour, fairly light job, 16 kilometers an hour and 20 kilometers. Now, 20 kilometers an hour is pretty fast when they're running for up to a minute of that speed. But we were lucky because Leeds United, um, there was a, a paper on them in The Athletic showing on The Athletic website about Leeds United, which showed that they outran every single other Premier League team. They ran so, the yeah, a journal in the, uh, sorry, an article in The Athletic, what they found, what they showed was that the Leeds United team under Marcelo Bielsa, as it was then, ran many more sprints and much total, more total distance in, uh, in, uh, during the Premier League season, 38 games, than any other team in England by, by quite a long way. Probably 
more than any other team in Europe because it was such a big difference. So we were lucky in terms of we had players who were extremely fit. They were used to running very long distances and therefore they could do the speeds. Now, it was interesting because Calvin Phillips, who was he's played for England and so on, he found it easier to run at 20 kilometers an hour than at 12. He didn't like running slowly. He likes running fast. So we collected the data on the players, which was very interesting. It told us certain things about the players. Um, we have a treadmill in our uh, laboratory at Leeds Beckett University, which didn't get, we, we bought it around about the time of the pandemic, so we didn't get to use it for quite a long time. So it was really the first work we did with it was on, was on Leeds United. So uh, the interesting, like I said, the data were interesting in themselves, but there was nothing spectacular standing out at, at the beginning. Then what happened later on in the year was we tested uh, some athletes, world-class athletes uh, from the UK, world's fastest man over 800 metres, uh, Olympic finalists, European Championship marathon runners and so on. So we, we analysed them with the exact same protocol that we had done with the players. Clearly, they found, the runners found it a lot easier. They looked much easier. Uh, and actually, we ran them at 24 kilometres an hour as well because they, they were able to do that for a minute. They, they, they were that kind of good. But what was interesting was that um, we looked at uh, this variable called duty fact. And what I noticed was that in the runners, most of them had this had a predictable pattern. So the better runners had lower duty. But there was one athlete who was the best athlete and he didn't follow the pattern at all. He stood out as having this massive duty factor, which was not what we'd expected at all. So given he was the best runner, I thought, oh, well, if he doesn't fit the pattern, then why does he not fit a pattern? What's different about him? And then I looked back at some days I had uh, from... 2017 World Championships. So the 2017 World Championships, the IWF sponsored biomechanics research project, and I was in charge of analysing the middle distance and long distance events there. So I had the data from from the 1500 meters and and the women's 800 and other ones like that. And what I noticed is actually was similar passion was happening, whereby the gold and silver medalists in the men's 1500 meters had really high duty factor, which is not what you'd expect to see. So it was a bit like this person we had, you know, in lead. He's not following the pattern. He's different. Well, these Kenyans were the same. They're different. So what duty factor is, it's a really easy measure to do, which is why I like. You only need to know two things, the contact time during a step and the flight time. And then you do an equation with, with those two variables in it, occasion involved. But basically, um, you're dividing contact time by total stride time, which is contact time plus flight time multiplied by two so you it gives you a, a ratio you might want to call, I, i've called it also previously the stance swing ratio so how long your foot is in contact with the ground relative to how long the total sort of duration is for it to go around and uh, if your contact time and your flight time are exactly equal say 0.2 seconds or 0.3 seconds doesn't matter as long as, the, as uh, provided they are equal your duty factor is 0.25 um in sprinters it might be less than 2 in 10,000 meter runners it might be 0.3 so it, it's kind of in the range 0.2 to 0.4 depending on how fast but it's it's a really nice measure to use because it relates well with something we call leg stiffness. A leg stiffness is dictated by the stiffness of your muscles and your tendons and your ligaments and so on. And in general, um, marathon runners will want to have high stiffness. So what that means is when they run, their knee doesn't bend too much. They might land on the forefoot, maybe, I don't know. But they, they, they will, the, the knee won't bend an awful. So that means that uh, their body doesn't sink down too much and uh, you get this this gazelle-like running style. So it's kind of familiar to people. You might see uh, long-distance runners moving along. They, they bounce a lot. They um, land on the forefoot. They, uh, this is related to running economy. So what we, what we when I went back to the days we collected on the distance runners, first of all, it was clear that we had a really good marathon runner, really low duty factor, relative, you know, the same speed as the other guys, relatively low duty factor, really high leg stiffness. British triathlete, elite woman, same thing, low duty factor, high. Um, then we look at this 800 meter run, really high duty, factor, low stiff. And the Kenyans, we we were able, we were able to calculate their um their stiffness then uh, as well as the duty factor we we're talking even higher duty factors ones you would say how is that possible for a middle listen runner and really low stiffnesses so it looked like i looked at i thought this is interesting because these are two different running styles and this kind of explains as well why a lot of studies on stiffness and duty factor they they they, they have conflicting results so you read one study that says oh this should be the way the stiffness is and then you read another one that says the opposite thing is well, maybe it's because they were different types of runners. So then I went back to the Legion United days. Okay, maybe I can, I can apply what I've found from these distance runners to the players. Now, uh, there have been other studies done by a French-speaking group 
and they uh, used the terms aerial and terrestrial. Every time I used the word terrestrial to people, they laughed because they were thinking of extraterrestrial. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to call them aerial and terrestrial. I'll call them grizzlies and gazelles. So the gazelles are the aerial ones. They, they're really bouncy. They have high leg stiffness. They have high um, ground reaction forces. They're, they're, they, tend to, they tend to fit a certain pattern. And if you do the statistics, they, that's, they, all, they all match up. So the grizzly bears, <clears throat> they're more like... I don't want to say they're powerful, they're not necessarily bigger, but they re- rely more on the contact phase. They push themselves forwards, not upwards. They um, they bend their knees much more, so they've got low stiffness. So the grizzlies and gazelles thing came about because I wanted to see, because I, I think certain positions in soccer are suited to different styles. Now, this is not particularly surprising when I tell you that the wingers and f- fullbacks that they play on the outside yeah our gazelles yeah <laughs> the people who are central midfield central defenders they're the grizzlies it's not really that surprising but it was still interesting because from a tactical point of view i think what that tells you is you need your gazelles to do the um the pressing if you try to get grizzly bear type ones to do it they're gonna they're gonna get tired because their running economy is so much worse um and this has come back to the whole once again uh, the niche thing so you have certain people who fit the gazelle niche they are springy bouncy they have a really good running economy they can run for longer you have the you have the grizzly bear niche they you know they they they, they're fast they can still be fast but they're they're more because they bend their knees more they may be able to change direction easier they might be more suitable for uh resistance training rather than plyometric training which suits the gazelles now of course it's not like there's a, you're born as one of these, one or the other. There's a continuum, of course. We had some players who were really low duty factor and some were high, but everybody, you know, everybody's on that continuum. So some people, we said they were neither nor, they were just a mixture of life. And I think uh, we also had um, one player who was a winger who was um, what we call kangaroo. Now, I didn't invent the word kangaroo. <laughs> there's a, there is such a thing in gait as a kangaroo gait. And what that means is the faster you run, the more economical you you become so most people's leg stiffness stays the same and that's what we found so the people who were gazelles they had a high leg stiffness at 12 16 and 24 and 20 it didn't change the people who were grizzlies they had the same low leg stiffness at 12 16 and 20 it didn't make a difference but one there was one player in particular he had a low uh, stiffness at, tw- at 12 that increased to a middle value at 16 to a really high value at 20 that's unusual that is not what, what's in the literature but it's known but when i looked into it more i uh, found people called it a, li- a kangaroo gate and i told him this and he was quite actually happy to be the kangaroo um but that's quite unique it's it's very rare for that to happen so um in a way and you know i've i've, I've talked to the football people in in leeds united i've talked to the athletes i've talked world-class triathlete and people like the grizzly gazelle thing because they get it you know they understand why would everyone like this and and I think it, it comes back to the niche thing whereby, you know, it, it, what I said to Leeds United, imagine all the players decide they're going to run a marathon for charity. The Gazelles, they can go under three hours if they're the right train. The Grizzlies won't even make it to the start because they're not suited to it. And I think, you know, uh, why do certain people struggle in the marathon when, you know, because 30,000 people do London Marathon, well, they're not all Gazelle-like suited to the race. A lot of them will be this Grizzly type. Uh, who would be better off doing 800 meters or 1500 meters, but they want to do the marathon because there's a challenge to the marathon. Um, so as well as being physiologically suited or not to the marathon, you, you can be biomechanically suited or not. I don't think people have looked at that as much. Um, you know, they measure VO2 max running economy, they measure lactate threshold, but they don't really measure spontaneous running style, which is what I'm talking about when I talk about the, the grizzlies and gazelles. Interesting. Yeah. So you're making me think that I am a grizzly. Because that's, I don't know, is it something to do with the resistance training? And I always try and, uh, you know, squat through my heel or my midfoot. Mm. So then I run through the midfoot and the heel. Um, but you mentioned earlier about doing like slow runs and stuff. And I can run, my typical pace is like somewhere around like eight to nine minutes mile mile mm. for like, you know, my longer runs. But I can go under six, you know, I can go six and a half under six if I, if I strike on the forefront of my foot. Yeah. So... Does that mean that I'm a kangaroo or that I just run fast? Or what, would you, what would you make of that, that I can do both, you know? You know, I think by, by changing your running style, you yeah, you might be slightly kangaroo. It's hard to know without testing you. Um, but 
you know, we we were running them at their fastest speed of 20 kilometers an hour, which is, you know, a kilometer in three minutes. So a mile in four. So <laughs> it's... Fucking um, Roger Bannister times here. That's crazy. But they're not doing it for four months. They're not doing it for that, just, for that amount of time. That's the thing. You know, we, when I say they were running for a minute, we were... Uh, we were we would t- it would take time to get them up to the speed, and we needed them at least thirty seconds at the speed, and then we'd slow them down a bit. So they were probably not even doing a minute at that speed. But the 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 distance runners they could do it. They were, they were used to it. Um, so yeah, I think everybody is able to do is able to change a little bit. But uh, in general, your leg stiffness is fairly fairly fixed usually. <clears throat> and like I like you mentioned, there's a theory. It's not really developed very well yet because there's not enough research on it but there's a theory that um those who are you know the, the grizzly burst types <clears throat> they bend their knees more they, their react ground reaction forces are smaller they're more forward pushing than upward pushing they respond better to resistance training uh whereas the bouncier ones respond better to plyometric now when i wrote the grizzlies and gazelles paper someone one of the reviewers was very he gave me some good advice which was he said it might not be that they're better suited to those things and, and they should just do them. It might just be that they want to they want to get achieve the same thing. So therefore they should use what suits them to achieve the same thing, if that makes sense. So <clears throat> you wanting to do a three hour marathon and somebody else who's a gazelle might think want to do a three hour marathon you should train to your strength to achieve the same thing um because you you'll probably respond to it. neither is there's a thing with the grizzly gazelle thing it's not that either is better it's just that they suit a different yeah absolutely so i'm thinking let's say you know i was to be classed as the, the grizzly or anyone else listening like we'll say the kind of it sounds like the more challenged of the long distance runners so we should probably run a shorter distance by what you've said but we're going to do the we're going to be hard-headed we're going to mm. run the full yeah my thinking would be all right I, I won't be able to get the pacing in but i'll be able to get the extra mileage in so let's just say in theory uh it's recommended in preparation for a, a full marathon that you do let's just throw out you do 40 miles a week on average mm. right yeah. yeah would it be possible to uh improve your performance or make the full marathon easier by doing something like 45 miles or 50 so basically you're at a disadvantage you know uh, genetically but you'll work a little bit harder is that realistic to think that way yeah i think so i think um you know mileage doesn't matter if you're going to do the marathon of 26 miles then you you need to do something close to that. now i used to get injured a lot so my body wasn't i mean i tried doing twice day training I, my body couldn't cope i couldn't straighten my knee one more so i i used to do low mileage but that would still mean doing 18 to 20 you know a, a run at the weekend that was maybe it's near the marathon distance and i didn't do that many marathons i was more you can't just do five or six miles train you know training and, and then suddenly magically do a, a half marathoners you know you need to be on your feet for a certain amount of time and you need to be able to do the distance you're not magically going to be able to cover a distance now 26 miles is different because i don't think you need to do 26 miles in training to run 26 miles in the race because as we already said you'll drain yourself too much but you need to get close to that at least once a week or once every few weeks just so you, you you're getting close to it um but in sometimes my mileage you know and i was i'm not a, i wasn't a brilliant marathoner i don't i'm not saying it like i was but i might not have done much more than 40 to 50 miles some weeks because i just couldn't but i so i focused more on <clears throat> a bit like what you said working harder in terms of uh, doing it fast. I see there's a trend now a lot for, oh, I think it should be slow. And I think this is, from what I understand, this is a confusion because what, what a study found, I think it was by Carl Foster in America, was that athletes were doing their fast runs too slowly and their slow runs too quickly. And he was saying, you know, and, and people took that, oh, people oh people are doing slow runs too quickly. So we should we should slow down. He also said that they should, they were doing their fast runs too slowly. And people, so people only picked on the bit where it's, where, oh, we should do something slowly. They didn't pick up on things. Oh, but we should be doing the other ones fast. So um, I used to I used to uh, do fewer runs, but do them faster because I, I couldn't the, the mileage. I couldn't couldn't do it, uh, and that might be a grisly way of doing. It. Um, so instead of ten miles slowly, do five miles quick. Just just because um, I'll give you another example. There was one of the speakers at the European Endurance Conference, which, which we organised in our, my university last November. He gave a really good example of an 800 meter runner who had been considered lazy by a previous coach. And what he said was, no, 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 she wasn't lazy. She just wasn't able to do long distances because she was an 800 meter runner who was sort of a cross between 400 meters and 800 meters. You know, I, I, so what really she needed was low mileage, but really high quality. Um, and that is sort of 
the grizzly thing. Um, I think they're not suited to long distances. Um, so better for them to do lots of short stuff fast. You can get 800 meter runners who are 800 stroke, 1500 meter specialists, and they will, it'll suit them to do long, longer distances because you can, you can have a grizzly and a gazelle in a race and, and either, they just have, they have different strengths. The gazelle is more economical, so maybe they can get to the finish easier, but the grizzly <coughs> will probably have a better sprint finish because they're able to uh, generate that horizontal force you need for, for sprint finish when, when running economy doesn't count any. So um, yeah, it, it's kind of, if you're doing the marathon, you just have to sometimes accept, okay, I'm doing it for the challenge. I'm not suited to it. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best, but I'm not going to magically do two hours twenty. It's just not going to happen. No matter how hard I work, I'm not biomechanically suited to it. Yeah, it's kind of um, knowing your own niche, like you said earlier, um, mm. and just completion as well is a big thing. I know it's not particularly exciting to be like, oh, I completed the race, but it's like if you've never done it before, that is the achievement, you know. So um, yeah. once you've completed it, I think then you can go refining it and be like, right. Second time out now, I'm going to try and hit a specific time. That's a much more practical way to go about it. Um, and just... Yeah, I think... I was just going to say, I think sometimes people are um, too hard on themselves um, or they don't realise just how physiologically hard a marathon is. Um, sorry to cut across you, but we did a study on risk-taking in runners. And we did this massive survey of thousands of people via Runners of World sort of promoted our, our research. And what was really interesting was we asked them a, a, an open question, which was... Why do you think, if you slow down the second half of the race, why do you think this was? And nearly everybody blamed wind, the weather. The person said, I had to change my artificial leg. One person blamed the crowds for being too noisy. There was also barely anybody, very few people said, well, I ran out of fuel or I ran out of steam. They, they put more like that. <clears throat> and I think, but that's that's why nearly everybody slows down is because the marathon is so hard. You're going to slow down because you run out of glycogen. So people almost didn't, you know, they, they didn't realize that it's normal to slow in the second half it's you can't be it's not, not somebody else's fault or it's not it's, it's it's not horse's fault or it's just a normal thing that happens and you have to accept that. um so so in a way you have to be prepared for it uh, and maybe if you've done one like you said and you've got time you've completed it oh, great i'm gonna do it again just realize that maybe not for the elite most people are, are going to suffer in the second half simply because of the nature of the elite. absolutely that's and suffer i did in my in the first half marathon <laughs> as i said i ran too fast hit a wall around mile nine and then i started blaming everybody around you know every, yeah. just all the excuses were coming and i was like you know kind of catastrophizing actually as well just being like you know oh it's mm. it's i might as well stop or something and then i kind of was like no like you have a part in this yourself so once you look at it like that what can you do now then i was like you know what it's my first one i'll complete it i'll be happy with that yeah. and then once i kind of realized that then i was able to get back on track and i actually finished at a de- with a decent time but yeah um it, it goes back to the planning point of like having a plan being strategic and not getting caught up on uh anyone else's time or, or the moment mm. at all. yeah when i hit the wall i remember thinking i've done all this training and now i'm walking uh but a few guys i knew from back home you know from from leeds they went past me and they were cheering me on and people were, were cheering for me and i got the sweets and all that and i was able to get back on actually i got back pretty much to my the pace i should have been on i lost a lot of time but um <laughs> once i but once i got to that hit the wall point it really was a case of I just want to finish now and who cares you know like you say you, you've got to change your mind okay you're not going to get where you wanted but whatever you get will be good yeah or whatever you get will be worth doing absolutely I was, that's my next question what was the sense of achievement like when you finished it was really good yeah I, I did 236 um, which was like I said slower than I wanted because I hit the wall but, but give, give me uh, so for people who don't know right I, I'm aware about 236 if you have a thousand people do the marathon how many people are going to do like what what percentile do you think you're in there I know I finished 120th the men's race wow so that's, of, and there were thirty thousand. that's the elite of the elite nearly <laughs> well i wouldn't say that but um i was in what, what's called the championship race so there's an elite you know, there's the truly elite people like from kenya and ethiopia and all that and then they have the championship race which is open to anybody from a british club who can run 245 or better so i i had a time from belfast marathon of 241 so i i qualified for that and uh, so we're not in the mass start uh we're not we're not treated like the elite but we're we're treated a bit better than the the master so we don't have to wait for an hour standing waiting to go you know there's tents for 
divided and, and toilets and, and you're a little bit closer to the front. I was, in a sense, competing in a race with other club members. So I'm not in the elite. I'm not in the fun runners or the charity runners or whatever. I'm, you know, near, nearer the front. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I when I finished, um, yeah, just really happy to finish. In the end. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't feel well the whole way around. Maybe it was as far as I, I don't, I don't know whether, whether I was sick beforehand or not. I just remember finding the splits I was doing harder than they should have been because I was able for that I, I'd done it already in a 20 mile race even after a mile I didn't feel right um, but uh, I felt really good at the end you know, they give you lots of goodies but but I was really sick for two weeks after it really really sick uh, like I said I had to go to the doctor I felt so bad um, I don't know how to describe it but yeah I was really 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 happy just to finish um, I, I, I never ran a marathon again I wasn't able to but um, I, I think I learned a lot from that and, and like I said things I learned make sure you have your, your jelly babies with you one thing I would say that's difficult about these big city marathons your, your, your listeners or whatever is you have to be much more prepared than I was in terms of the food you're going to have because you might be travelling to Boston or New York or wherever for your big marathon it's, you're not at home so you don't have your own bed you you don't have your own kitchen and um, both when I did Belfast and London didn't really get the food the night before I needed to I, it just wasn't possible in a strange city and I don't know where anything is you know uh, so the elite athletes won't have that problem. Local athletes might have that problem, but most people will have this problem where they you, we, we we went somewhere to eat and portions they gave us were way too small um, for running a marathon the next day. And this was this was a pre-marathon special eel put on, so you end up wandering around. Yeah, it sounds like a little bit of bad luck that uh, caused you to stop, but in spite of that, you still had a great time in in the marathon of, of two thirty six. Um, so it kind of leads me to my next question then. So yeah, another kind of like misconception idea, whatever you want to call it, is running is bad for your knees. So I feel as though, you know, having a podcast on running sort of answers this question in and of itself. Uh, you know, running isn't bad for your knees, I would say personally, but you're the authority, Brian. What would you say about running and like, you know, knee pain or arthritis? What are your thoughts on that? It's really hard to say because running can be bad for your knees if you're a bad runner, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, I, I teach uh, modules on on sports injury and the first thing i always tell the students or one of the first things i always tell them is that every injury is, is caused by biomechanics every single injury. and the specific factors the main factors is what we call stress so sometimes it's just effectively force um and if the force is too great things will break that's same for every material on the planet right so your body isn't any different uh it comes back to the psychology thing you can't think yourself injured or you can't unth- you know if something is torn it's torn you might, you might think it isn't but it is um so if uh, if the stress is too great, you're going to have a problem. Now, our bodies are actually quite well designed for certain stresses. So um, one form of stress we call compression, just when something gets squeezed. And our bones are really good at compression. They, they like it, actually. So astronauts go into space a long time. Bones become brittle because they haven't got weight bearing. So this is why weight bearing is really important, because it's uh, compression. But for the bones, it helps them remodel and so on. So this is why aerobics is. There's another kind of stress we call tension. This is sort of a pulling stress and muscles are good with that and ligaments and tendons are good with that because that's what they're designed to do bones are not so good at it because they're not designed to do it usually uh our bodies are quite good at coping with compression and tension so you sort of run along your bones get compressed that's okay makes them better actually your tendons and ligaments get pulled on that's fine that's what they're designed to do um but one of the other sort of forms of stress is called uh, torsion i think this is one of the main reasons why running can be bad for your knees, but not just running. Activity can be bad for your body. So um, a classic example of a torsion injury would be the anterior cruciate ligament tearing in, in sports. So sometimes you, you put your foot down, <clears throat> it gets fixed in place for some reason, try to turn and your ACL tears because uh, you've had that twist in your knee. That is probably the most common way it, it, it gets torn. So th- so uh, our bodies are not really well designed to cope with torsion. We're very linear creatures. We don't twist a lot. That's not really the way we're designed. So if you have a running style or maybe bad running shoes or whatever that means you have a lot of torsion, I think then it can be bad for your knees. It's not so much the running as in as in the way you're doing it. So um Sometimes people have got weak uh, hip muscles, so they, they drop on one side or or it it, it rotates too much outwards. <clears throat> we one of the, the players we've tested, you know, is landing on the outside of his foot. And, and and if you show that to somebody who doesn't understand biomechanics, they'll think, Oh, there's something wrong with their foot. Oh, no, there's something wrong with their hip. <laughs> yeah, because it's the the whole leg has been turned outwards from the hip downwards. So 
um, that will put pressure on the knee. So um, <clears throat> I don't think running is bad for your knees. I think torsional forces are bad for you and, uh, and for other parts of your body. So you, you have to make sure that you... I've got a run, good running style, if you like. Um, and I didn't. Uh, despite being a biomechanist, I had a bad running style. I've got a slight scoliosis in my cervical bone. So um, that's why I got these injuries, you know, because I wasn't good biomechanically. I did my best. But if you want to be a top marathon runner doing 150 miles a week or whatever it is, you can't manage that with, with bad biomechanics. So I don't think running is bad for your knees, but all exercise will involve stress. And if the stresses are inappropriate or you can't cope with them or they happen in a way that damages your, you call your biological tissue, or connective tissues then yeah you're going to get injured that's actually yeah what my kind of next question would have been is it's kind of a stress situation so it's like running is fine but if you do too much running for your kind of niche as you said it or your running style like gazelle or yeah um you do too much too soon um or you don't give yourself a sufficient recovery or you have the wrong shoes it's it's all the other little things um if you're not patient for example and you just you know you mismanage yourself then that's how i would say it's more likely to get an injury but um yeah there was a really i can't remember the author of the study but there's a really nice one where it said 75% of injuries caused by uh, training errors. In other words, those things you mentioned, um, incorrect progression, too much overload, too early, um, not enough recovery. So actually most injuries are preventable if you follow the principles of training that most people know, familiar with, like, you know, progress slow to overload. Um, but people aren't patient so they go too quickly and that's why. They, because your body can cope with the stresses, but you have to give it time to uh, compensate for what it has done already in training yeah absolutely like people starting off the race too fast when their normal pace might be a slow start or um maybe some people shouldn't even start with running maybe they should start with walking and build up that way or something but yeah i think yeah yeah yeah. If you find the right load, you your body can definitely tolerate a load. You just have to find out what that load is, and, and running is definitely not bad for your knees. No, no, it, it's it's. Um, if I were to go out running now uh, and try to do what I used to do, I'd be injured. You have to build up slowly, and that's why you know it's children who who want to do running low loads to begin with get used to it get the right movement patterns, um, develop what we call physical literacy, you know, that you know how to balance, move properly. Um, that's more important than, than, that's obviously better in the long run than doing lots of miles. It's the same, you know, you'll know the same for, for lifting weights and things. Start off on light weights, do the technique properly. There's, there's no point in lifting a big massive weight. You know, you see, you'll have seen them in the gym, people doing biceps curls, but they're barely moving their elbows at all. What they're doing is they're moving their back. They're moving their whole spine backwards so that the, the weights are moving upwards, but they're not using their elbows so uh yeah good technique is really important to develop in line with your your fitness just don't go too quickly because it'll come if you're patient and you, you know don't start your marathon training program too late i know the, the term has been coined you know like ego lifting you know lifting and you know trying to show off but i'm sure there's ego running as well it just hasn't been as widely used i'm sure there's people who try and run too fast or too much beyond their ability so yeah, yeah. it's good to, to to clear that up from uh, an expert such as yourself um, but brian this has been this has been brilliant uh, thank you very much for your time yeah, thank you. Um, is there any uh, final messages or links or anything you want to talk about or anyone who's like new to running doing their first half marathon or even me you know any any final messages you want to leave us with i, I think um i think there's a lot of nonsense on the internet if i'm honest with again, you yeah. yeah i see a lot of things that are biomechanically completely and what i would say to people is don't don't worry too much sometimes some you know you you might read on say your heel striker oh you're going to be overstriding. You're going to have this. You're going to have that. But you can't change the way you are. Just like that. Talk about grizzlies and gazelles and kangaroos. You're going to have a running style that you've developed over years and years. You can't just magically change it. Also, you shouldn't feel bad that you you run that way. I was a heel striker. Most of the world championship athletes are heel strikers. I think Kipchoge is a heel striker. <coughs> it might be different for 800 meter guys, but most of your listeners will not. So don't feel like you know you read something and it's gonna it's telling you you know you should be using this app. You should be running this way if you don't where this you're going, you know just just do what you can do because um a lot of stuff that people put out there is scientifically incorrect it's based on what they've observed what they've done themselves and you know research is good there's a lot of stuff out there that people can read um if you don't understand it often there's an email address email the person ask them you don't have to read the most complicated research in the world but often you know there, there will be something something available <clears throat> so yeah i i i have a lot of uh, what i'm working on now is around what we call overstriding which people 
people say, oh, such and such overstrides. There's no, there's no proper definition of overstride. And actually, the best athletes in the world do more of this so-called overstriding than the average runner. So, um, because that's the only way to run faster. So, uh, a lot of misinformation, I think, sometimes. Um, when you're running, you will almost always run your best style. It might not be attractive. It might be ungainly. It might not be even the most economical. But it's probably going to be the best for you because it's your body and it's the way you've learned to run. It'll improve with time. You know, your 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 muscles get stronger. Your legs might get stiffer. Um, your arms might work better. But don't don't feel like there's a there's an exact way you must run because everybody runs differently. <clears throat> don't read too much into some some of the stuff online. You no, know, uh, find somebody who's experienced like you or not and has the credentials and, and qualifications. Um, and work with that person to improve what you have because you might be a grizzly. You might be a grizzly. But, and, and you can't necessarily change that, but you can, you can work to improve yourself. It's kind of like own your own style, whatever that is. Don't, yeah, yeah. don't get caught up in the misconceptions because there's, if you only have one style, but there's exactly. probably a thousand more misconceptions out there, especially if you go look online. Yeah, definitely. It's like everything. It's like everything. Yeah. It's just the way it is. Now. All right, Brian, thank you very much for your time. Uh, okay, thank you. Great.